I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Do let us know what you think about the podcast. You can either email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, or, even better, post a review on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Right, coming up on today's episode, a little treat for you. The secrets of the lobby. We go behind the scenes in this shadowy group of journalists who stalk the corridors of power. My Times Radio colleague, Carol Walker, has got a book all about the lobby. We speak to her. Uh, we hear from some of the spin doctors who've tried to get their stories past the lobby. And a co- the current and former political editors of the time steve swinford and phil webster are coming up too but first it's our columnist panel no libby Powers this week so we've got ray sylvester this week joined by martha gill really interested in talking about uh the um i don't know basically we need to come up with a name for them so maybe we can do that but it's the new tbgbs uh, it used to be uh, every story in British politics was seen through the prism of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and whether or not they were getting on, uh, the, the relationship between number 10 and number 11. Things slightly improved a bit under David Cameron and George Osborne. Uh, but lots of focus right now, uh, Rachel, on the relationship between Boris Johnson and his Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Yeah, the BJRSs don't quite work, do they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need, um, we need, we need to work on that. It's inevitable that this was going to happen. Um, You've got this kind of incredibly boosterist, optimistic uh, prime minister who loves spending, splashing around the cash. And you've got this very cautious, um, much more traditional conservative chancellor who wants to balance the books. And so there was going to inevitably be this clash. And it's also the kind of clash between the institutions of the Treasury and of Number 10 um, that always plays out in Whitehall. And I think so it's those two things are compounding it. Um, But it's obviously going to come to a head as we come up to the spending review. And in some ways, you want a bit of this grit in the oyster, if you like. So in some ways, I think David Cameron and George Osborne were too close. So David Cameron wasn't able to restrain the kind of harshest bits of austerity. And then George Osborne wasn't able to persuade David Cameron not to hold the Brexit referendum, which destroyed both their careers. <laughs> so you need a bit of conflict between Treasury and Number 10 to get a good running government. But the problem is, if it's absolutely um, catastrophic and there's no agreement and no room for compromise on either side, then you end up with gridlock, deadlock, which is what we're in danger of having at the moment. 
Um, uh, Martha, what do you think about this? Because on the one, is it just taking actually, you know, grown up politics means that, you know, there are different priorities and Boris Johnson has, uh, you know, has to appeal to the whole country and be doing the right thing for the country. And ultimately, it's Rishi Sunak who has to um, uh, get the checkbook out um, and, and pay for it. Is this just entirely, is this politics working properly or is there more to it, do you think? Well, the thing that suggested it's not quite working properly is is this um, story that's come out that um, Johnson and his team number 10 are keeping the Treasury out of the loop. So he's committing vast sums to new policies um, without really telling the Treasury, um, which seems to be um, a bit of a problem, but in the, <laughs> to say the least. But um, there's the sort of two major decisions which are coming up, one on the uh, triple lock uh, manifesto protect pensions and the other one on how much they're going to give social care will obviously be a fulsome discussion that will be treated to over the next three weeks or months so obviously the treasury is going to be very involved but um we should remember that um rishi sunak kind of was put into his place because almost he seems like a bit of a pushover or sort of more experienced and more malleable than sajid javid who um uh, was replaced because he wouldn't cede control, um, more control over finances to number 10. He wouldn't file his aides and w- work with the joint number 10 uh, Treasury, if you remember. And now we see Rishi Sunak actually doing a bit of standing up to number 10, which I think is, as Rachel says, is 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 the right thing. You want to see the number um, 11 resisting some of number 10's uh, spending. Yeah, there was this incredible piece in the uh, Sunday Times yesterday from Tim Shipman about, about you're, you're right, all these things that, that the Treasury first find out when the sort of press release goes out. There was the the uh, the, the royal, the new yacht, the trade yacht, uh, which um, uh, is going to cost them like £200 million to replace the Royal Yacht Britannia. The idea was it would go around the country, uh, go around the world, I think, you know, um, pushing uh, trade, Britain's trade relationship. The Cabinet Office was originally asked to devise the plans. Uh, then the Department of International Trade was originally expected to benefit from them, but they realised that you couldn't build it in the UK or insist on it being built in the UK uh, without it going out to sort of tender. So we could end up with the Great British Yacht being built uh, outside the UK, which obviously would be absolutely terrible. The only way you could insist on it being built in the UK is if it was technically a, a warship. And so suddenly it becomes a problem for the Ministry of Defence, which has been t- saddled with the project, and it's told it's got to find the £200 million uh, to go with it, and they'll have to put some sort of fake guns on it or something, and then it's a warship, and then we can uh, insist it's uh, built here. All of which the Treasury seems to be completely left out of the loop on this. Um, uh, the thing that struck me, Rachel, if you look across several of the papers today, there are, I mean, if I was being cynical, headlines which might slightly point to the idea that the uh, Treasury team are briefing uh, the papers quite enthusiastically. Uh, you've got, you know, a story on the front of The Guardian. Ministers tell Johnson consult the entire cabinet, not just number 10 clique. Cabinet ministers, including Rishi Sunak, urging Boris Johnson not to side, keep sidelining ministers. Um, but in several papers, you do wonder if... Um, uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, team are briefing maybe a bit too enthusiastically and it might come back to bite them. Well, it's um, uh, it, whenever the Prime Minister has a wobble and the Cheshire and Amersham by-election certainly was, I would say, a wobble for Boris Johnson and his kind of boosterism, then other ministers and particularly the Chancellor are going to seize the opportunity. Um, I think the issue here is that you need to have the balance between the two. And so on something like social care, you know, the Prime Minister's got this idea, which is, you know, drawn up years ago by Andrew Dilnot for a cap on how much people um, pay for their care costs. But that does have to be paid for. Uh, and Rishi Sunak's right about that. 
So you can't, you, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it when it comes to tax and spending. You can't say no taxes and only spending. You have to compromise and you have to have a bit of both. Uh, and that's where in the run up to the spending review is just going to be m these rows on multiple fronts. I mean, I saw it um, as chair of the Education Commission on the uh you know, education recovery package that Kevin Collins proposed, a £15 billion um, plan that Boris Johnson was absolutely all guns blazing for. And in the end, the Treasury blocked it. So it shows where ultimately, you know, the Prime Minister may be a first lord of the Treasury, but in the end, if the Chancellor doesn't open the purse, then that's, uh, it, there's nothing really he can do unless he has an absolutely major bust up. And it, it was struck, I can't remember, one of the papers I was reading this morning, some briefing from the sort of team, uh, Rishi, saying that the Chancellor does not think now is the time to, to put up taxes on hardworking people. And, but it's this idea that the current level of tax we've got is the exact right amount. <laughs> um, and yet we want to do more. And it just seems, oh, and I know, you know there's manifesto pledges that we wouldn't put up income tax or national insurance or VAT. But um, if... In the, you know, we've been, blind. we've been through a lot in the last 12 months. If one of the things that changes in that is that actually we do want to sort out social care. We do want to pay nurses more. We do want to fund catch up uh, um, for uh, children. So maybe we need to pay more. Why the great communicator Boris Johnson, Martha Gill, could he um, make the case for putting up, I don't know, a penny on income tax, 2p on income tax to pay for this stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I mean, I think that's absolutely something he, he, he does not want to do and probably will not do. But I think that given, given where we are, given the fact that we've just, our eyes have been open to the, uh, the importance of uh, looking after everyone, of spending, of social care, there's been a huge amount of focus on old people. We've shown the country will do a huge amount to protect um, you know, older, more vulnerable people. We've had a huge amount of as it were, welfare spending um, uh, than we've ever seen before. I think we're, we're in a place where we can see that things can change dramatically. And now is, now is probably the time to make the case uh, for doing things in a slightly different way. Um, I, I don't think Boris Johnson is going to do it, but I think that he, he possibly could at this moment. Yeah. And also, especially for pensioners. So this pension, tri pension triple lock, pensioners are going to see their incomes go up quite a lot, whereas uh, the rest of the country and workers aren't. Uh, so there are there are opportunities there, you know, for flexibility. Uh, and I think, you know, Boris Johnson has shown himself flexible on manifesto pledges when it comes to aid spending. <laughs> uh, but he could make the argument, you know, things have changed. You have to change... Uh, you think about the companies that have made a lot of money from the pandemic. Um, could you have some kind of wimple tax on, you know, the Amazons and the Netflixes that have really cashed in on the pandemic? So, you know, not not maliciously, but they've they've done well. They've done very well, yeah. And you do. Mm. I mean, that's been one of my um, questions about the Labour Party. If Keir Starmer had spent the last year saying, uh, "Let's tax Amazon to pay," you know, for a pay rise for nurses. Well, I mean, you're going to be in a much worse position. Maybe it would have been worth a go. Um, just because you touched on the education thing specifically, uh, Rachel, we should talk about the Times Education Commission um, uh, and the fact that uh, you're going to take evidence from Sir Kevin Collins. Is it tomorrow? It's tomorrow, yes. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see what he's got to say, both about the kind of recovery, but also the future of education more generally. 
because he's long been interested in that gap, attainment gap between rich and poor, uh, and how you close that, that both now, but also longer term. And we did some really interesting polling, uh, uh, which is in the paper today, which shows that there's massive support, 60% uh, favour uh, an extended day, half an hour longer day. Only 29% of people oppose it, which was the key recommendation of Kevin Collins' review. Uh, and what I found interesting as well is those figures are even greater among conservative voters. 71% of Tory voters back the extended day, which, you know, following on from Cheshire and Amersham, you just think, is Boris Johnson losing touch with his core supporters um, by blocking this uh, reform uh, plan, recovery plan proposed by Kevin Collins? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how um, uh, if he's got any more to say about that, and whether or not there's been any prospect of a, I don't know, a rapprochement. But is it is it all is it all over for his plan? Do you think, Rachel, or, or is it possible that Boris Johnson might come back to this? Well, you do hear chatter in Whitehall about you know it's still being looked at for the spending review in the autumn. So, I think that I do actually think they're going to have to do something more. Uh, I think to give a tenth of the package that their own expert recommended is pretty mean-spirited. Um, and I think there will be more in the spending review, probably. Uh, it just depends what. So the Treasury is not convinced that the longer day is either popular or cost-effective. Um, so I, I don't know whether it'll be that or whether there'll be more training for teachers. But I think they will do more, actually. Yeah, probably just try to pick just the right, uh, just the right moment to uh, to basically give some more money than they originally promised. Probably not quite as much as Kevin Collins asked for. Um, hey. the last thing I want to ask you both was was this sort of relationship between town and country. Uh, there's sort of lots of stories around about this. Apparently, uh, house prices in rural areas are growing, uh, rising much more sharply than in urban areas. Uh, and there's a really interesting story in the Times today about how farmers are suffering from increased antisocial behaviour because people. Obviously, staycationing is a big thing, but in some cases, that seems to be just turning up and um, smashing things up, turning animals, running animals over, littering, sheep worrying, and uh, and so on. Do we all need lessons on how to behave in the countryside, uh, Martha? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's these people that don't really know how to shut gates and keep the animals in, even though there are big signs on them and light fires everywhere. Um, I mean, it's a shame, really, because farmers can only farmers don't really want these people to come and stay on there. On the, in their fields and uh, and set up have to set up as 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 B and Bs, um, but at the moment that's the only way that some of them can make ends meet. Um, uh, but yes, it seems like we're not behaving very well. We usually go and do this kind of thing in Spain. Now we're going we're doing it in Dorset. <laughs> <laughs> it's very upsetting when people in Dorset. Uh, yeah, what, what do you think, Rachel? Maybe, maybe your, your, the Times Education Commission could recommend lessons on how to behave when you go well, to the country. Well, absolutely. I think it's sort of about just general decency and politeness and not being awful to other people around you, isn't it? Whether that's in the countryside or whether that's in Benidorm. Um, you just shouldn't drop litter. You shouldn't leave your barbecue and your tent behind. I find it absolutely baffling that people think it's OK to do that, to be totally honest. Yeah, I mean, and that's true of whether it's a park in central London or central Manchester well, exactly. or whether it's, yeah. you know, out in the countryside in Devon and Cornwall. Well, that, there, there you are. You've been told. Pick your rubbish up. Martha Gill and Rachel Sylvester there. And don't forget, you can read all about the Times Education Commission online right now. Just go to thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's the secrets of the lobby.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now we're going to bring you the secrets of the lobby. Dating back to the 19th century, the lobby is an exclusive group of political journalists who are briefed directly by the government. It's at the heart of the relationship between the politics and the media. But how it works is still a mystery to many. Well, Times Radio's very own Carol Walker here weeknights at 10 till 1. She has a new book, Lobby Life, Inside Westminster's Secret Society, in which, in which she lifts the lid on how the lobby operates and how it shaped the big political stories of our time. And I'm delighted that Carol joins me now. Hi, Carol. Yeah, hello, Matt. Really good to be on your show. <laughs> well, it's nice. Welcome to 10 o'clock in the morning rather than the evening. Uh, it's nice for you to see some daylight. Now, um, uh, explain why you decided to write uh, this book. Because you, you don't mind me saying so, you were in the lobby for many years. Yeah, that's right. I was in the lobby for more than 20 years, actually, Matt, unbelievably. And I think it's only when I left the lobby to become a freelance journalist, and of course now I do my show on Times Radio, that I realised quite what a special and important part of the, our political life the lobby really is. Um, and so I should perhaps explain to people that the lobby, it's nothing to do with the sort of lobbying that people have heard about with David Cameron and Lex Greensill, which is about someone trying on behalf of a business to try and get some maybe changes to rules that don't suit their particular company or to try to get access to a government scheme. The lobby is essentially, as you know well, this club that all the political journalists uh, belong to, most of them anyway, right from your Laura Koonsbergs and Stephen Swinfords down to the representatives of some of our regional newspapers, those that still survive. And the lobby pass gives them access to all sorts of parts of Parliament where the public don't get to go. Um, traditionally, and the reason why it was called a lobby pass was because they could go into the members' lobby, which is this gothic uh, hallway <laughs> right outside the members' chamber. 
um, where you could catch politicians and ministers and have a quiet word and find out who's rebelling. And it also means that you get a briefing twice a day when Parliament's sitting from the spokesperson for the Prime Minister of the day. And that briefing is the occasion when um, the spokesperson tries to put out the best possible message of what the government's trying to do, the spin, if you like, and all the journalists try and get a, a story, try and get the spokesperson <laughs> to say something they didn't want to say. So it's absolutely at the fulcrum of that critical and often contentious relationship between the media and the government. And uh, it's not always got the best reputation, has it, uh, Carol? Because it, sometimes it's seen as a bit of a closed shop. If you're someone who's trying to report on politics from outside uh, Westminster, trying to get into that sort of secret circle it, um, can be difficult. And also just the criticism that it's a bit incestuous, that the that everyone's a bit too close to one another, a bit too cosy, the relationship between uh, journalists and number 10. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Those are the big criticisms that are always made of the lobby. First of all, I would say that it has changed a lot. Um, in researching this book, I discovered quite how secretive it used to be. I don't know if you remember a great legendary figure in the lobby, Chris Moncrief, who was the political editor of the Press Association news agency, um, who died quite recently. But um, before he did, I was privileged enough to spend quite a long time chatting to him. And he said that when he first joined the lobby back in the 1970s, it was like MI5. He was told... <laughs> He was literally told he couldn't tell his wife that he had even been to a lobby briefing from the <laughs> Prime Minister spokesperson. Um, it's and like th Fight Club, the first rule of lobby is you don't talk about lobby. Absolutely. And it really was like that. Um, and another of our colleagues, Tom Newton Dunn, when he was chairman of uh, the lobby journalists, actually did a lot to update the rules. It's much more open. It is now on the record. Anything that the spokesperson says in those briefings is now on the record. Um, although, of course, the plan to televise them was shelved, which um, I think I don't know, you may touch on um, <laughs> later on. Um, but yes, it, it is a club. And of course, if you see all these same people every day, people get to know one another. But what is fascinating is that although it is a club, each political journalist will be hugely ambitious and hugely competitive and will want to get their own stories. So there is that that sort of healthy rivalry in there. And what is also interesting is that although people sometimes criticise this, this pack mentality, if you like, of the journalists, oh, they're all doing the same old thing, um, that can actually make the journalists quite powerful because when you've got um, a government on the back foot, um, perhaps in trouble, um, you will have been at these briefings when one political journalist will say, well, you know, where is the Prime Minister's uh, plan on social care? And somebody else will follow up with another searching question. And what happened to exactly that proposal which came up a few months back and so on? And in that way, the journalists collectively probably and very often extract a lot more information and get a lot more out of it um, than they might do if they were in a one-to-one -one, uh, meeting with the with the spokesperson. With I've the definitely had that conversation with sort of specialists, you know, whether it's health specialists or transport specialists or home affairs and that sort of thing, where uh, they've said, you know, I'm just like one voice in the corner banging away at a story, but because there's not an opportunity for 
all of the health correspondents to get together and uh, harangue a spokesman from the government. It doesn't get the same sort of traction. And sometimes it's only really when something gets picked up by the lobby. And like you said, that sort of pack mentality sometimes uh, takes off. Uh, let, well, let's speak to someone. Uh, Carol, stay there. Let's speak to someone now who's been on the other side. Paul Harrison uh, gave uh, lobby briefings as Theresa May's press secretary and used to have to deal with the lobby on, on the lobby on tour, the pack mentality. Paul, um, morning. Describe what it's like morning. to face the lobby pack. For the first time, it's utterly, utterly terrifying because, as Carol says, you know that you're on the record and you know that anything you say becomes kind of immediately attributable to, to the PM. So it, it feels quite high wire. And I definitely sort of agree with that pack mentality thing. There have been points where, you know, there, are, there might be sort of six or seven topics that you, you prepare for ahead of giving a lobby briefing because they're the six or seven juiciest news stories of the day. But you always have one in the back of your mind that you think, I would really rather this isn't asked about. <laughs> and, you know, there will be points where you think, oh, I've got away with it because there will be, you know, you might get one or two passing questions that you feel like you, you just about bat off competently. And then someone might come back round to it because, you know, a question that one of their colleagues has, has come up with has kind of sparked one of their own. And so it does feel, you know, like you're in, you're in control of what you say and, and, and the responsibility is on you. But there, is, there are some sort of points where you think, I'm not really sure the odds are stacked in my favour here. And on, on the question of is the lobby too cosy, do you, were there times when you thought the relationship between uh, the reporters and the people they were reporting on was, was too close? Were you sometimes... I mean, did you have your? Fa- I mean, apart from Carol and I, did you have your favourite journalist that you you would deal with? Did it get too cosy? I mean, <laughs> think back to the sort of two years of Brexit uh, disaster and madness that uh, that I was in at It didn't feel that cosy at all. <laughs> oh, for more coziness, there were definitely like there were people that you felt were you know were more open to hearing your arguments than others. Sure, and actually, if you think about the kind of Brexit divide in West, particular newspapers were on particular bits of the argument at the time. Yeah, there were definitely people that were that that we felt were kind of, uh, you know, saner a fair word than than others. But but in in that actual moment when you're delivering the briefing, it you know it doesn't feel cosy at all. Um, and actually, I guess it probably shouldn't because at that point you're. You know, it's not quite hand-to-hand combat, but it is, you know, you're doing different jobs. You're trying to do a different thing. So, you know, it, yeah, it, it didn't feel massively cosy, although, you know, I can see from the outside why, why people would think that. Uh, one thing I, I was sort of intrigued as to what your approach to the job was. I know, Carol, you've spoke to Bernard Ingham uh, for your book. I mean, you spoke to loads, loads of people. And I, was, I was struck by how, you know, the issues change, the ministers change, the subjects change. Um, you know, the reports has changed, but lots of things don't change. There was a lot of it actually was was much the same. This was um, when I spoke to some press secretaries last year. This was Bernard, Bernard, Bernard Ingham, former press secretary to Margaret Thatcher, explaining um, how he had a very clear approach to the job. I resolved from the very beginning that I would play straight with them if they played straight with me. I'm intrigued, Paul Harrison. Is that the approach that ultimately you might get through one day, maybe telling a little porky pie there, but because you are dealing essentially with the same pretty limited number of people, you can't, you can't, you know, you do have to build up a, a certain amount of trust. You, to be honest, uh, the moment you, the moment you knowingly tell a lie 
or you make a mistake and you don't correct it, you are an empty chair. I mean, you may as well not be there because your only real value to the PM is being able to, you know, if a story, say, is so wildly off theme but would still cause trouble, you know, you have to draw on that reserve of trust to say, look, like, don't write this. You're going to look silly. It's not true. You know, that's when you're really sort of proving a bit of your value. And and the truth is the kind of the, the inversion of that criticism that maybe the, the, the lobby is too cozy with the government is actually you deal with the same people all the time. And if they if they decide collectively that, that they don't trust you or that you're a waste of space, then, you know, <laughs> again, you're, you're that empty chair. You're not doing anything. You're not providing any help to the government. So, yeah, it, it's the number one. To be honest, it's like it's the only rule uh, of my <laughs> club, which is basically what it is. Uh, Never, never lie. Never, never lie. Top, top advice there from Paul Harrison, former press secretary to uh, Theresa May. Uh, Carol Walker, stay there. Up next, we're going to speak to the current political editor of the Times and a former political editor of the Times uh, to find out how uh, they think the lobby should and shouldn't uh, uh, work. This is, this is Matt Cholley on Times Radio in association with GoDaddy, providing the helping tools you need to grow your business online. Times Radio Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Coming up on Times Radio Breakfast, we'll commemorate the anniversary of Windrush with David Harewood, the actor who is, among many things, a child of the Windrush generation. We'll go back even further in history to learn about Galileo Galilei, which sounds like I'm singing a Queen song, but I am not. And it's Tuesday, so we'll be convening our leaders panel. William Hague and Kesha Dugdale join us to debate the day's news. Times Radio Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy. Providing all the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Nice to have you with us this morning. This Monday morning, we're talking the secrets of the lobby. Times Radio's very own Carol Walker's got a book out this week uh, going inside Westminster's Secret Society. Carol's still with me, but let's bring in now current political editor of the Times, Stephen Swinford. Morning, Steve. Good morning, Matt. And former political editor of the Times for about 200 years, Phil Webster. Morning, Phil. Morning. <laughs> nice to have you with us. Uh, and Carol's uh, with us here too. Now, one of the things I uh, was interested to uh, start with you, Phil, was was how much the lobby changed, uh, whether the, the advent of, uh, whether it's, you know, first of all, mobile phones, emails, uh, the internet. Um, did that ultimately, because you, you first joined, the, you first started working in part of the, was it 1981? Uh, so you covered, you know, an awful lot happened at that point. But actually... The lobby was essentially still just a lot of blokes, mostly blokes, getting together in a room for another bloke to tell them things. Definitely. In those early days, I, as you say, I started in 81. The lobby was a much more deferential place in those days, I'm afraid. And uh, it, it, the secrecy, uh, we conspired in the secrecy. We went along with the secrecy because the mystery seemed to, to sort of help in the job in those days. So our officers um, didn't really know what we were up to, but every, every day virtually we'd come up with a splash story from some source that uh, we didn't reveal. Often that source was, was number 10. And uh, I think Carol will, will have mentioned in her book the, the way we had briefings with a leader of the Commons every Thursday afternoon, but we advertised that meeting on the lobby notice board with this rather strange... Uh, uh, thing blue mantle and then we when we were meeting the leader of the opposition we put up on the notice board red mantle so we were keeping it secret from the rest of the journalists who weren't in the lobby in the building 
that all changed. It all changed completely during the 80s, um, and with, particularly with the advent of mobile phones. I won't go into the whole story, but I was with the lobby when it got locked up in, en masse in Zimbabwe once at the end of the 80s, and none of us had mobile phones to report this great story. We were with Neil Kinnock at the time. We all had to agree not to try and find a house in Zimbabwe where we could phone our story from, <laughs> but to go to the hotel together and then fight for the phones. And it was a real fight for the phones because there were only three phones in the hotel and 15 journalists when we got there. So only a few of us made it to the first editions. That's how it's changed so much. Social media, of course, has also meant that you can't sit on a story. We used to be able to sit on a story, pick it up in the morning and hope it'll be the splash the next morning. But these days you have to get the story out as soon as you can using Twitter, however. Stephen Swinford, as a result, is the lobby less important to your day-to-day -day operations than maybe it was in the field? There are far more people in the lobby. Um, and so if everyone's getting the same information, if you want to stay ahead, then you need to yeah. get your information from elsewhere. So I, th I think the lobby still has value, Matt. It's really important to hear what number 10's lines are and the kinks in those lines. You can often detect where they're not quite denying something, where there's a gap in it, and you think, <laughs> ah, there's a story there. But the most important work, Matt, as, as you know as well as anyone, is done outside lobby. It's at your lunches. It's the conversations you have with ministers and MPs. So for me, it's part of the day, but it's not a particularly significant part. The most significant part often comes later in the day, over a lunch or over a, a kind of indiscreet chat with a minister, and that's where the stories are. The thing I want to talk to about all three of you about is sometimes the lobby can be a bit naughty. And, uh, you know, a pack mentality on a, a story of high principle is one thing. Sometimes, uh, through a combination of boredom, mischief-making, whatever it might be, uh, the lobby gets a bit uh, carried away. Uh, I was reminded of this when we did our... Uh, we did a, a special episode uh, last year about press secretaries. Uh, and I spoke to Simon Lewis, who was a press secretary to Gordon Brown. Uh, and he described having high hopes of a trip to the G20 in America, where Gordon Brown was going to be hailed for saving the world economy. What quickly became clear is that the lobby, and when the lobby is on the road, it's both at its best and at its worst, the lobby decided that wasn't the story they wanted to write, that the Prime Minister saved the financial system. What they wanted to write was that the Prime Minister was trying to get a bilateral meeting with President Obama. What I realise is that much as you may prepare for these visits and all the excellent stories you want to get out, if the lobby is minded to pursue a certain story, then it does. And uh, it even became known as uh, the brush-by story and whether or not a bilateral was going to be available or was it going to be a brush-by or as was speculated, would the Prime Minister have to end up meeting the President in the kitchen of a, of a hotel? I have to say there were times during that visit where I sat thinking, all the best work in the world, <laughs> if the lobby wants to get a story up and running which has got nothing to do with your narrative, then there's not a lot you can do. Carol, when you were researching your book, did you come across other examples of the lobby maybe being a bit naughty? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And just to pick up on the point that was made a little bit earlier about this kind of cosy relationship, which is obviously the accusation that frequently crops up between, uh, when it comes to the lobby. Um, I, I was privileged um, in researching this book to talk not just to Paul Harrison, who you were talking to a little while ago, but to, to Bernard Ingham, to uh, Alistair Campbell, to Joe Haynes, to many other press secretaries 
let me tell you, none of them ever felt that there was anything remotely cosy. And as, <laughs> and as Stephen was pointing out, you know, that the lobby is only ever the lobby briefing from number 10 is only ever going to be one of your sources as a political correspondent. Um, but yeah, one of the stories, I think it must have been a quiet political day, but there was a bit of a row going on back in the coalition years about the price of energy and ah, whether energy bills I know, were going this up. Is, this is Jumpergate, isn't it? I was this there. This is Jumpergate. I was yeah, there. So, so <laughs> Ed Davey, who was then an energy minister, um, had made a comment about whether when it was cold, people could put a sweater, should put a sweater on to keep warm. And there was this um, whole, <laughs> yes, the pack were asking a, a slightly inexperienced press spokesperson um, whether the minister was advising the public to wear a sweater if they were cold. And <laughs> the, I think they eventually managed to persuade the person to say something like, well, yes, I do put on a sweater if I'm cold. And uh, yeah. That is perhaps not one of the, the I remember finest it was moments a, it was in the a Friday, of the Quite often the Friday morning lobby, there's not much going on. Journalists are a bit bored. And I remember, and it went on and on and on about whether or not, if someone's cold, would the Prime Minister suggest they put a jumper on? Now, the obvious answer is, of course, if you're cold, you put a jumper on. But this, the spokesman rightly identified that if you said that, you've got the Prime Minister saying, uh, turn your heating off and put a jumper on, says Prime Minister. <laughs> Uh, and then he becomes out of touch, uh, out of touch elite. Surely the, the lobby never behaved badly in your day, though, Phil Webster. Always, really, always. <laughs> we we were quite merciless, and uh, and particularly on foreign trips, uh, as as you were saying, foreign trips, the lobby often ran amok, and uh, uh, there was something about being out of the country together. Um, and if a, if a little story started running, it, it tended to get out of control. There was, again, with Neil Kinnock once in Washington when Reagan was still president, um, Kinnock went in to try and persuade Reagan that Labour's unilateralist policy that he was still lumbered with at the time uh, made all kind of sense. And um, we spoke to Kinnock and, um, and Healy afterwards, and apparently the meeting had all gone very, very well until one of our journalists went along to the White House briefing. Uh, he he was had a later deadline, so he went along to the White House briefing. It was 100% different. And the way that came out was that Kinnock had had a real dressing down from Reagan about the, uh, about the policy, uh, the unilateralist policy. And that, of course, became the story until we got back to Kinnock and Healy and found out that um, the president spokesman had rather laid it on and we somehow had to come up with a story that was down the middle. And uh, it's, it's the way that those uh, very often on, uh, on overseas trips, the agenda that had been set by the press secretary at the time was completely ripped up um, on, the, on the tarmac leaving Heathrow. And Steve, looking ahead to the, um, uh, the future of the lobby, I mean, what we've seen actually in the past well, year, 18 months, sort of pre-COVID, where there were attempts by the Boris Johnson down to sort of circumvent the lobby more, just putting clips out on social media and that sort of thing, even trying to divide the lobby into those allowed into briefings and those uh, not allowed. 
There was the abortive plan to then televise lobby briefings, which everyone in the lobby said would be a terrible idea for all concerned. And lo and behold, number 10 came to that view too. Right now, lobby briefings are taking place on uh, Zoom uh, or Teams with people texting in questions. It's not particularly um, conducive uh, to sort of open uh, debate and interrogation. But what do you think the long-term state of the lobby is? Do you think that actually people will go more and more to finding their own... Uh, if essentially you're getting almost nothing from the number 10 machine, and lots of people talk about being spoon-fed things on number 10, if only sometimes that they even knew where the spoon was. Uh, but um, uh, do, do you think long... T- what, what does the lobby look like in five, ten years' time, do you think? I think for the immediate question is, when do we go back in person, right? Which is presumably at the end of the restrictions. And the sooner that happens, the better, because it's fine doing it over the phone and we all kind of coalesce what one person chairs the lobby they ask the questions and that's fine but it's no replacement for doing it face to face and that's for better and for worse so on the worst side one of the things that always drives me nuts about lobby briefings is when you get kind of grandstanding from reporters trying to kind of be very funny and very witty i remember doing one of those and someone was trying to kind of make repeated snarky jokes in their questions and on the fringes of the group was one dominic cummings at the time who was watching these proceedings with interest and and in fact as we know in hindsight was sharpening the knife for the end of those briefings to bring them to a televised briefing now those televised briefings didn't happen but the best of the lobby is when as a pack it smells where the story is it smells where the non-denials are and it goes for it and that happens much much better in person so for me the sooner we get back to in-person briefings the better yeah, I couldn't agree with, you, agree with you more, if only because the WhatsApp group where everyone posts their questions will stop beeping constantly while, I, while I'm on air, <laughs> given, particularly given that quite a lot of the questions are, are, are absurd. Um, Carol, uh, your final word to you, um, having, having dug around in the history of, of the book, uh, to write your book, The History of the Lobby, what do you think about uh, where it will end up? Because it, to some extent, the thing that really struck me reading the book was how, how much hasn't changed. Um, do you think that, that a combination of technology and a you know, we'll do what we like attitude in, in Downing Street means that the, the, the lobby will change in the coming years? Well, I think the lobby constantly changes. And uh, as Stephen has pointed out, uh, there are lots of different ways of getting your information these days. But in a way, I think that the lobby, um, because it's full of <laughs> so many brilliant journalists like Stephen and lots of enterprising people who realise that they've got to continue to uh, make uh, their own way in this changing uh, political and media landscape when you've got social media and so on. They're, I mean, they're exploiting it. I mean, it's interesting how often it would be a lobby journalist tweeting a line out which first ge- alerts you to perhaps a big breaking political story. And uh, media jur- and political journalists, as well as the politicians, now use social media as part of this kind of ongoing battle to shape the political narrative. Um, I think some of that outright hostility to the lobby from number 10 um, has uh, evaporated somewhat with the departure of Dominic Cummings and uh, his colleague who was the Director of Communications, Lee Kane. Now that they're no longer in Downing Street, it appears to be back, back much more on a level of sort of formal equilibrium. They're never going to be, it's never going to be a love in, is it, Matt? But um, so I think that the calibre of political journalists we've got and their ability to adapt to the changing media and political landscape, um, I, th- I think they're, they're here to stay. 
Well, I hope so, because it keeps us all in work. And uh, we'll find out what today's lobby briefing uh, brings us when it uh, kicks off at 12 o'clock today. Like I said, it all happens on Teams and they post questions in a WhatsApp group. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the poor uh, journalist chairing it has to try and get some uh, sense out of uh, number 10. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. 